You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast. Midweek debrief number 50. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today on the show, I thought we would discuss self-improvement. It's something that, at least I'm sure the listeners of this podcast are interested in and something that is obviously a huge market, a very popular brand right now, especially in the United States, in the Western world. But what is, what's behind our, our need, our urge, our desire to improve ourselves? What is it that drives us to be the best person that we can be or Contrary to that, what is it that drives us to give ourselves away, to compromise ourselves, to dehumanize ourselves in such a way that we end up disappointed, full of regrets, often guilty at all the opportunities in our lives that we may have missed or messed up? Because in my experience anyways, everybody I know on some level, wants to be better. Maybe not the best, but they want to improve. They want to be better. There's things about themselves that they wish to improve. And yet, as as I've discussed here on the podcast, perhaps it's not the fear of failure that sabotages people's desire to improve and get better. Perhaps it's actually deep in their heart at root, a fear of success. Because success brings responsibility. It increases the consequences, the gravity of our decisions and our choices. And when confronted with the the potential consequences of a, let's say, a major life decision, that can be very daunting. It can even be crippling to the extent that we don't act upon our dreams and our hopes for fear that we fail, or worse yet, we, we succeed. And now we have to do that all the time, or we have to do more of that. We have to eat even more healthily. We have to take care of our health even more diligently. We have to train even more often. We have to read more. We have to be more for other people. The weight of those expectations can often be more crippling than running through all the different ways you might fail and saying, I don't really see a way forward for me to succeed in the way that I imagine. So you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to bother moving in that direction at all. I'm just going to stay right where I'm at. And I think in that sense then, because of the desire for self-improvement and yet the fear of failing or succeeding at that pursuit we have all but eliminated the need for heroes in our culture. In fact, that's, I think, why we celebrate the anti-hero, which is really just a villain, the enemy of my enemy is my friend philosophy, and the heroic, at least the classic heroic characters and tropes have now been vilified or demonized. I was reading yesterday that young men's desire for a rites of passage, for elderly 
men for the sage to come and instruct them and point them in the right direction that they're going is why they're so drawn to Jordan Peterson. And that the fact that Jordan Peterson simply says, make your bed, will result in him selling millions upon millions of books and selling out theaters all over the world. Because here's this elderly man, this sage, who has brought this wisdom to bear upon the lives of these young men in particular, but women too, who are just awash. They're, they're wandering through the world, but they don't know the intent or the meaning or the purpose or the goal of their life. And so someone comes along and says, make your bed, and they think that's a revelation. When that's just what you do. <laughs> and so even the act of making your bed in the morning becomes a heroic activity. We don't go out and fight dragons anymore. We make sure that our sheets are tucked in. What happened? Well, how did we get here? I'm going to go back to my friend uh, Friedrich Nietzsche again, since he has taken up so much of my time and attention these past weeks since I got through all my medical stuff. And early on, there's an essay he wrote in, what's it called? Untimely Meditations. And what he gets after in Untimely Meditations is fear and laziness, which are, in his opinion, what basically prevent people from improving, from getting better, or in, a, in an Aristotelian sense, moving from something that is potential to actual. So Friedrich says, in his heart, every man knows quite well that being unique he will be in the world only once and that there will be no second chance. He knows it, but hides it like a bad conscience. Why? From fear of his neighbor who demands conformity and cloaks himself with it. But what is it that forces the individual to fear his neighbor, to think and act like a member of a herd and to have no joy in himself? modesty, perhaps, in a few rare cases. But for the majority, it is idleness, inertia. In short, that propensity for laziness. Men are even lazier than they are fearful. <laughs> I just made that comment the other day that I'm back up to training and sparring for three hours on Saturday mornings, and then I I teach for three hours Saturday afternoon and evening. And coming back from having to, being forced to take time off almost a month, physically, you're out of shape. Stamina, cardio-wise, you're compromised. And it takes a while to get it back. In fact, cardio and stamina are the first to go and the last to come back when it comes to jiu-jitsu in particular. And I noted, jokingly, it's, it's really hard work to be successful. It's hard work to stay on top and not get knocked over and put on your back in jiu-jitsu and grappling. It's hard work to be an ass kicker. It's much easier to just be lazy and pull guard. It's easier to let someone crawl around on top of you and hope they make a mistake and maybe you catch them with a submission. It's easy to be passive to be the submissive. It's hard work to actively maintain top pressure, to force the pace, 
to control the direction of the round. The, the subtext of any sparring match or fight is, I could quit at any time. I've done enough. This is good enough. And yet that ego, it drives you to say, you've worked this hard. You've come this far. You're really going to let this person just have his way with you? You're just going to let her do this to you? Push through the pain. Push through the suffering. Use it as fuel. Use it as motivation. Because you know when the bell rings, you're going to feel good. You know you're going to be better for this. So the whole thing about how jujitsu kills your ego, leave your ego at the door, that's true for sure. But that's not all there is. It's a dichotomy. Because it's ego what brings you back to jujitsu. It's ego that drives you to prepare for the next round. It's ego that drives you to prepare for the next fight or the next tournament. And so what jujitsu does for you is it teaches you how to control your ego and keep it within its proper boundaries. Because you do need pride to show up and put yourself through what you go through day after day after day in jujitsu. It takes a sense of pride. It takes courage. It takes a little bit of ego to show up and take an ass beating and give an ass beating, to be the hammer, to be the nail. Because more often than, than not in jiu-jitsu, you're a nail. doesn't matter how far up you go as far as belt rank, there's always going to be a hammer. But laziness has no place. Not at the end of the day. Laziness will be exposed in jiu-jitsu, in Muay Thai. Laziness gets you defeated and submitted over and over. Laziness is what not only allows you to never advance or advance in little increments, but it's laziness that will ultimately cause you to say, you know what, I'm going to take today off. And today becomes a week and a week becomes a month and a month becomes permanent. Why? Because even though every man knows that he is unique and that he has one life and the clock starts ticking the moment he's conceived, he doesn't get a second chance. There is no do-overs. There's no mulligans in life. And so every person, every man and woman knows they're unique. But they hide it as if it's a bad conscience, Nietzsche writes. Why? Fear. Fear of your neighbor. It's your neighbor who demands conformity. It's your neighbor who demands that you cloak yourself, you cover yourself in conformity, even though Aldous Huxley in Brave New World Revisited notes, I think it was him, it's either Huxley or Young, notes that those who conform most perfectly to a corrupt society are those who suffer from the greatest mental illnesses. Chew on that for a while. Those who are the most mentally ill are the most conformed to a sick and corrupt society. Because in order to conform to a sick and corrupt society, one must therefore become sick and corrupt him or herself. And the more sick and corrupt you become, the more you fit in. Therefore, those who determine what is normal for society, according to Huxley or Jung, are the most mentally ill. Now, think on our politicians. Think on social leaders. Think on celebrities and influencers. Think on those who are pointed to as the bar for what is normal that we should conform ourselves to in thought, word, and deed. Conformity 
is something imposed upon us by our neighbor. But what happens is we end up fearing our neighbor. We end up fearing what our neighbor thinks or what our neighbor is going to say if we step out of line, if we don't walk with the herd. But those who go and conform and are part of the herd have no joy. In fact, they're incapable of joy because joy is a consequence of individual accomplishments. You can have joy as a team. You win the Super Bowl. You made it to the top of the mountain. You accomplished your, your work goal for the quarter. And you get that reward as a team. But each member that's celebrating is celebrating their part, their contribution, what they did to bring the team this reward, this trophy to this goal. Are we celebrating each other's success? Sure, as a byproduct. But if I didn't experience joy individually, selfishly, personally, I wouldn't be a part of this team. I wouldn't be a part of this team. I wouldn't want to climb that mountain. I wouldn't be striving to get that trophy. I wouldn't care about the bonus. Joy is individual. It's about the individual person and their unique contribution to the team. Whether, again, it's at work, whether it's on the playing field, whether it's in an adventure. Yes, some people, it's because they're modest, because they're without guile. But for the majority, it's inertia. It's laziness. Conformity breeds laziness. Because as Nietzsche notes, men are lazier than they are fearful. Better to not even try than to try and fail. And then be called out by my neighbor who saw me do that. And now it's my neighbor who's responsible for putting shame upon me. And it's my responsibility for accepting that shame because I did not conform. And that's how society runs. I always talk to my kids about the 11th commandment. What will the neighbors think? In the upper Midwest, it's an ethic. Don't step out of line. Don't poke your head up. Don't separate yourself from the herd. Don't think you're unique. Don't think you're special. Put your head down conform, and go along to get along. That's the ethic of our society. And what has it produced? Not heroes. Not men and women of, of courage, of great character. What has it produced? Villains. Victims. Who blame everybody else for their lot in life. Because they're lazy. You don't want to be a part of the herd? Fine. Walk away. Well, I could never do that. It's like when people ask me about how I eat or about my workout routine or my training schedule or just all the stuff that I've got going on day to day. And eventually I hear the same thing no matter what the topic is. Well, that just seems too difficult. That just seems like a lot of work. That just seems like a lot of energy. You must have to make a lot of sacrifices. It's always the same thing seems like too much. But if it's not too much for me, and I'm just an ordinary man, how can you say it's too much for you? I'm not special. I'm not above or better than anybody else. I'm not more athletic or stronger or faster or more attractive or more intelligent than anybody else. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. But by saying it's too much, 
we preemptively cut off that opportunity so that we don't have to step out. We don't have to get judged by our neighbor. We remain in, con- in conformity with the herd, with what is considered normal. We remain inert and idle and lazy. By and large, most people I know are lazy. Becoming the person that God made you, not made you to be, but just made you, that's the most difficult work of your entire life. God created you, created you for a purpose. What's the purpose? Most people spend their entire life trying to figure that out. Or they think it, and then they immediately push it away because they don't want to take up that big question about God, the universe, and the meaning of everything. Which is 42, by the way. That's a deep literary reference. (laughs) So bonus points to anybody who, who gets that. But this is what Nietzsche says, is that in his essay, Human, All Too Human, he says that they fear their higher self because when it speaks, it speaks demandingly. (laughs) To be better than you are today is a demand that you put upon yourself. To be better, to be stronger, to be smarter, to be more knowledgeable, to be wiser, to be kinder, to be more loving, more compassionate, more heroic, more courageous, braver. That's your higher self. But it's not really. I guess in in Nietzsche's sense, he means the true self, like the true you, not the you that conforms to society. That's the fake you. That's the you that wears a costume. But the real you, when it speaks, is demanding. And what it demands is that you separate yourself from the herd It demands that you stop listening to other people tell you who you're supposed to be. It tells you to burn up the script that other people who have given you, this is the role you're going to play. The you that God created you to be is not the you that your neighbor says, that's who you have to be. You must be this person. I've been thinking a lot on the whole matter of compromise because there is this lie in modern society since the Enlightenment but especially in the 20th century, especially because of psychoanalytical language and the language of therapeutics and therapy, which says that the best way to get along at work, at school, interpersonally, is to compromise. But that's a lie, in my opinion. It was a lie for thousands of years up until very recently. My wife and I, when we got married, we got married and we agreed to accept each other, the whole of each other, 100% without reservation, unconditionally. And then for the beginning of our marriage, it was this battle. And it was all about compromise. There's the woman I wanted her to be for me and the man that she wanted me to be for her. And we we expected each other to compromise. We violated our marriage vows from the get-go because even though we said we accepted each other unconditionally, What we really meant was, I accept this person for now, but at least in three to seven years, I expect him to be different. I expect her to be different. I expect him to compromise, to fit into my expectations of him as a husband. I expect her to compromise, to fit into my expectations of her as a wife. And once we learned how destructive that is, 
And by the way, if one out of every two marriages in the United States ends in divorce, maybe that's proof that compromise isn't the way forward for a healthy and successful marriage. Instead, what we, what we realized was that whatever you do, it has to be 100%. You're either 100% in the marriage or you're not in the marriage. You're holding something back. If you're at a job, you have to be 100% invested in the job, 100% invested in the school and your education, 100% invested in your training. You're either all in or you're not. The expectation up until very recently then was you're all in, warts and all. Whereas with the Enlightenment and the Hegelian synthesis, we went from black and white to gray. And then everything's about compromising and finding your way to the squishy middle, to the gray area. And what happens to your higher self, your true self, as Nietzsche notes? Gets obliterated. This is what Nietzsche is writing against. He's writing against Hegel and the Enlightenment. He's saying, I see the trajectory of this Enlightenment philosophy, which is to basically swallow up the individual human being into the collective herd. And that all that matters then is the ethics and the morals of the herd, the normality of conformity to the mob. And Nietzsche understood what this is going to lead to is the obliteration, the annihilation of the individual. And so when the individual, the true self, actually speaks to you, your conscience speaks to you, it's going to demand that you break free from the group, that you break free of the shackles, the chains, the prison of conformity, and instead ask, who did God make me to be? Not who did my neighbor make me to be or who does my neighbor want me to be, but who did God make me to be? So then how do you find meaning? How do you find the goal of your life, the purpose for why you're here? And then how do you work toward it? Well, one, you need an ethos. You need an organizing idea, an ultimate goal that you need to accomplish. We talked about this before, about having short-term, mid-term, and long-term goals. You have to have an ethos, though. Is it the warrior ethos? Right? That's why I started this podcast. That's why I started reading and, and going in the direction I did and listening to the podcasts that I listened to and, and watching the videos and, and attending lectures is to say, I don't have an ethos. Is it the Christian ethos? Is it the warrior ethos? Is it an ethos of love? Is it, what, what is the ethos? What is the ethic, the, the, the ultimate unifying thing that gives me a foundation to work from? Because I realized up until very recently then, I didn't have an ethos. None was provided for me. I didn't have a rite of passage into manhood. I didn't have sages to direct and lead me. Those were all taken. Those were all anemic. And then even those who did step up tried to co-opt me and make me into kind of a surrogate son or uh, try and transform and, and, and make me into a, a different version of themselves, a better version of themselves. They tried to fix their mistakes, their choices, by fixing me. And then I became this project. And that never ended well either. That's why up until about five years ago, I basically just had toxic relationships with older men because I was looking for a father figure, I was looking for a mentor, and they were looking for a surrogate son and someone they could fix, a project. Maybe they felt like they had failed as a father or failed as a professor or failed as a churchman, and they were going to fix those, those wrongs. They were going to repent of those sins by making me into a better version of them. 
And of course I chafed at this because I didn't want to be a different version of them or a better version of them. I wanted to be me, but I didn't know who I was. I didn't have an ethos. Others tried to provide me with one, sometimes by forcing it upon me or giving me an ultimatum, which never works well in my case. It's the worst thing you can do is give me an ultimatum or threaten me. But you need a goal. You need an ultimate goal. You need something that you're willing to sacrifice for, to get, to achieve. Can it be abstract? I guess. I think it has to be concrete and real. It has to be tangible. So maybe you don't become an Olympic athlete. Maybe you don't invent a cure for cancer. Maybe you never even set foot at the base of Mount Everest. That doesn't matter. Those aren't your goals. Those aren't given to you. So ask yourself, what is given to you to do today? What is your short-term goal? What is your mid- and long-term goal? Are they tangible? Are they concrete and real? Are they achievable? Maybe it is to read in such a way that you improve your mind and through knowledge you gain wisdom. Maybe it's to read in such a way that you're learning how to express yourselves better to other people. Maybe it's to improve your training so that physically, mentally, and emotionally, you're a stronger, better person than the one that you were yesterday or five years ago. The specifics aren't important. They're important to each individual, yes. But what is important, according to Nietzsche, is the difficulty of the task. You may remember, you know, this is Jordan Peterson again. Pick up the heaviest load you can carry because that's the meaning of life. And what Jordan's getting, because he's basically an Enlightenment humanist, is that the goal isn't important. What's important is the work. And the more difficult the work, the greater you will become in order to reach that goal. And the thing is, once you reach the top of the mountain, you're going to look around and find other mountain peaks that are even taller than the one you're standing on. You're not going to quit. You already made it to the top of this peak. You already just proved to yourself you can do it. So why not just push yourself that little bit further? Climb the next highest peak. And now all of a sudden you're stronger and you're better at climbing. And then you see the next highest peak and you think to yourself, well, I mean, I climbed that one back there and then I just got to the top of this one and this one's bigger than that one. What's to stop me from the next one? And there's the fear of success, right? That's when that sets in. When does this end? It never ends. There's always another peak. There's, other, there's always another valley. There's always more suffering. There's more hardship. There's more heartbreak. There's more strain. There's more stress. There's more anxiety. There's more fear to overcome. And so it's not about the goal and reaching it. It's about the task. And the more difficult the work is, the stronger you will become, the greater you will become, the more heroic you will become for having accomplished it. And so how do you find that goal? How do you find that task, that work? Maybe you've had a dream your whole life. Maybe you know exactly what it is. You've just been afraid to do it to this point. Even if you had all of the choices, all the opportunities before you that are humanly possible, that are imaginable, and there was no boundaries, no restrictions, no conditions put on your dream, would you go after it? What more would you need 
to do or what would other people have to do for you to act on that? Because I'm sure you know people, as I do, who don't have dreams, who are hopeless, actually. If you were to ask them to look at themselves in the mirror and engage in deep, thoughtful self-reflection, they, they couldn't do it. One, because they're not capable of thought. They're only capable of thinking. And second, they don't like what they see or what they see scares them. Think to yourself, what do you love more than anything in the world? First and foremost, the answer must be yourself. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But then secondly, what is it? What thing, what person, what is it that you would sacrifice anything to have or to gain? I think the older one gets, the easier it is to see in your mind's eye that thing, but also easier to give up because you say to yourself, well, I'm this number of years old and therefore if I haven't done this by now, I'm never going to do it or it's too late or whatever the excuse might be. I see this all the time with people. I'm 49 years old. I'll be 50 in July. And I see this constantly with people my age. Well, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I mean, I just, there's just certain things I can't do anymore. Really? Did you ever do them to begin with? Did you ever try? Or is 50 just your excuse? I know 80-year-old women who do CrossFit and men who look great. They look like they're in their 60s. They eat right. They take care of themselves. They're super grateful. They see life as a gift. And they get after it every day. They don't care one iota about 80 years old being attached to their name and their identity. That means nothing to them. It means nothing to me. When I was in my mid-30s, I was so afraid of 40 years old. And then I turned 40. And I thought to myself, wow, this isn't so bad. And then I turned 41. And I thought, man, this is awesome, actually. I think I'm starting to figure stuff out. I care less about other people's opinion of me. I can see with better perspective, backwards and forwards. I think I'm starting to figure out who I am as a person, what I like and dislike, all of my flaws, all my strengths. And so every year, I think, since 41, has just gotten better, really, for me personally. Maybe that's different for you, but then ask yourself why. I don't believe this myth that the older you get, the less opportunities there are for you in life. Or that the older you get, the more you have to temper your expectations. Or somehow, the older you get, the more decrepit you become. That's not written in stone. That's a choice. <clears throat> now, obviously, there's physical prohibition, mental limitations, whatever there might be as you get older, sure. Two of my teammates were joking with me on Monday night that 80% of my game is working from bottom side and Venus flytrap choke. I love the side triangle. But part of that is one of the people teasing me is twice my size and half my age, and he's a, a mutant. And I love him to death. Shout out to Jack. And Cameron, my, my little brother, is just one of the best wrestlers you could ever possibly go against, and he's got the heart of a lion. And I am not young. I am not athletic. I may have the heart of a lion, but I'm not going to try and physically compete against those two young men. 
And so, yeah, against them, most of my game is bottom side control and fly trap chokes and just defending attacks. Because I have to accept my physical limitations. I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I don't have the quick twitch muscles that they do. And if I try and compete at that level, I'm going to hurt myself for sure. And sometimes I actually do. I think I have a bruised kidney on my right side now because of Jack. And so even though I don't fear them, at the same time, I have to be careful and not become, uh, what's the word? Flippant about my physical limitations as a 49-year-old man when I'm going against a 21 or a 23-year-old or a 28-year-old for that matter. That doesn't mean that my goals change. It doesn't mean that my hopes change. It just means that I have a sober perspective on my capabilities. And so I don't say to myself, well, if I just keep training and I lift weights and I eat right and get plenty of sleep, I'm going to just crawl all over Jack at some point and just completely dominate him physically. That's not happening. It's just not. One, I'm twice as old as him, so he's never catching up to me. When he hits his physical peak, I'm on the other side. (laughs) Two, that's not my goal. It's not my dream. It's not my hope that I can physically dominate Captain America, the man-child, as we call him. No. My goal is to be the best person that I can be, the best teammate that I can be for him. And that when I show up and we do spar, I don't just roll over and quit and take the lazy route, but that I compete to the best of my abilities. And that means some nights, maybe he taps me 10 times in five minutes. Other nights, maybe that means he taps me twice, whatever it may be. But I have to accept that I'm not, I'm not of that cloth. I'm not cut from that cloth anymore. Maybe I never was. But I don't live with regret about that because whatever I was doing when I was their age is what I had to do to be the person I am today. And so I don't live with the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. I don't live with regret anymore because of it. Because I recognize that whatever I went through at 21, 23, 24 years old, being an alcoholic and a drug addict, being suicidal and self-destructive, I couldn't show up for them and be an elder to them, a big brother to them or a father figure to them or a good teammate to them if I hadn't gone through that myself. And so even the things that maybe other people regret about their past, addiction, abuse, self-destructive behaviors, criminality, they're what made me me today. They're what fuel my motivation today. They're what drive me to achieve my goals today. And with each goal accomplished, I get intoxicated on success and I want more. So I strive for a greater goal. And I'm a goal-oriented person. Maybe you are too. And maybe that's what drives you, our goals. And maybe not having those goals, not having an ethos to work from is what kind of stymies you and creates this sense of despair and anxiety in you that you start listening to other people tell you who you are going to be for them, the people who want you to conform and compromise for them because they've compromised. They don't want to be reminded of that. They don't want to be told they're lazy or they're cowardice or they're timid. They want you to tell them they're great just the way they are. They're heroes in their own way. But if we don't know what our heart's desire is, if we don't know what it is that will cause us to sacrifice, to achieve some greater goal, to be a hero in the eyes of our children, our spouse, our coworkers, our teammates, our peers, why not? Why is that so verboten 
to use a German word. Why is it so forbidden to want to be a hero? Why is it if I say the goal of my life is to be a hero to other people, to be a hero to young people, let's say? Why is that so funny? Why is that so absurd? Why do people scoff at that or mock that? Oh, you're just being arrogant. You're being, that's, that's pride talking. Why? Why is it wrong to want to be a role model for young men and for boys? Why is it that you want to be a heroic person? You want to be a person of courage and integrity and dignity, of wisdom, temperance. Why is that not praiseworthy anymore? Why is that such a niche market? Why do most people consider that a fool's pursuit, a fool's goal? Well, Nietzsche has some advice for those folks that, that behave in that way. He says this, and this is again from Untimely Meditations. Let the youthful soul look back on life with the question, what have you truly loved up to now? What has elevated your soul? What has mastered it and at the same time delighted it? Place these venerated objects before you in a row, and perhaps they will yield for you, through their nature and their sequence, a law, the fundamental law of your true self. For your true nature lies not hidden deep within you, but immeasurably high above you, or at least above that which you normally take to be yourself. That's an amazing paragraph. (laughs) I will actually cut and paste that into the show notes for today because that's worth reading a couple times. Let the youthful soul look back on life with the question, what have you truly loved up to now? What has elevated your soul? What has mastered it? And at the same time, delighted it. Place these venerated objects before you in a row, and perhaps they will yield for you through their nature and their sequence, a law, the fundamental law of your true self, an ethos. Because your true nature lies not hidden deep within you. This does not require deep meditation and reflection. Instead, it's not in you, it's above you, high above you, or at least above that which you normally take to be yourself. Normal is equal, is synonymous with conformity, with compliance, with compromise. When someone says you're not normal, thank them, because that's a compliment. Because normality is slow death. Normality leads to mental illness. Normality is compromise, compliance, conformity to the herd, to the mob, to group think, to the collective, which says your individual identity doesn't matter. All that matters is the collective identity. Now get in line and march with the rest of us. Go watch Pink Floyd's video for another brick in the wall from the movie The Wall or just watch the whole movie. That's the, that's the subtext or the thesis, depending on how you look at it, of the entire album. The purpose of life is to find that goal that is higher than yourself, that is bigger than you. Once you find that and you strive for it, you're going to encounter setbacks, heartbreak, pain, hardship, And the greater the goal, the more strength that it requires of you, the more pain and suffering you're going to experience. And yet, 
when you go through it, because the obstacle is the way, when you go through it, on the other side, you realize how much stronger you are now. That success, like I said, it's like when people start jujitsu, since I'm thinking so much about it, because I helped teach intro last night again. You listen to new people when they really, when it clicks for them what jujitsu really is and what it's doing for them. And they all, they say the same thing that I said. This is like a drug. Or like I say, jujitsu is the most addictive drug that I've ever taken. And what's great about this drug is it makes you a better person. Now, again, it can become self-destructive. It can ruin your relationships. It can ruin your workplace performance for sure. Just like anything else, you can use jujitsu and make it into something self-destructive that ruins relationships and everything else, ruins your life. But kept in the proper balance, there's nothing better than jujitsu for self-improvement and for making you a better person and connecting you with better people. But you're going to have to go through setbacks. You're going to have to lose. You're going to have to tap a thousand times, 10,000 times, a hundred thousand times to improve. There's going to be pain, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. And yet those things are what cause you to become stronger and, and grow and become a better person. And those who run away from it run back to the comfort of mediocrity. Because that's what normalness is. It's mediocrity. It's the squishy middle ground. That's why the word media, median, is in the word mediocrity. It's to seek the middle, to live in the gray, to comply, to conform, to compromise. And these are what make people lazy. These are the things that cause people to judge others who try to behave in a heroic fashion. Because they failed. They ran away from the task. They ran away from the work. And so they only see suffering and pain as a negative. Why? Because they're ignorant. They literally ignore the truth about suffering and pain and the goal. They don't see any value in suffering and pain because for them, suffering and pain are morally bad. And therefore, people who engage in something that causes undue suffering and pain to them is implicitly morally bad. And maybe they even say that. You've changed. I don't like the person you've become. You used to be so different. What happened to you? Why can't it be the way it used to be? Because, Karen, I started jujitsu, and it changed my life. And it caused me to change my diet, change the way that I sleep, change the way that I interface with other people, change the way that I see myself, changes the way that I think the way that I experience emotions and it changed everything about me for the better. So you saying I've changed is a compliment because I don't like the person I used to be. That's why I chose to actually annihilate the person that I used to be. The person I used to be is dead and I killed him. He ain't coming back. Jesus isn't going to raise that guy from the dead because that wasn't me. That wasn't the true me. That was the me that you wanted me to be the me that you wanted to compromise and comply and conform to your expectation and your image of who I'm supposed to be for you. But I'm not that person and I'll never be that person again. And if you don't understand that, I understand. But you're ignorant. You're ignoring what's observable, what's right in front of your face, which is I'm better than I used to be. I'm stronger. I've grown as a person. I'm kinder. I'm more compassionate. I'm a better listener. I'm calmer. 
uh, I'm more capable of being selfless and helping you. But all you see is I stepped out of line. I'm no longer marching with the herd. I'm never in lockstep with you. I have my own drumbeat in my head. And it's a boom bap beat from the 90s. Suffering is not only wrong and bad. You don't need to be fixed because you suffer or you experience pain. Instead, you need to ask yourself, why am I suffering? Why am I in pain? Is it degrading me? Is it dehumanizing me? Am I allowing myself and others to drive me in this direction? The direction of conformity and laziness? Has inertia taken over? Or am I suffering and in pain because I am striving for something that is higher above me, that is greater than myself, that is making me a person of integrity and dignity and courage and wisdom? You know, Nietzsche says in The Gay Science, there is as much wisdom in pain as there is in pleasure. That it hurts is no argument against it, but its essence. Let me read that again. There is as much wisdom in pain as there is in pleasure. That it hurts is no argument against it, but its essence. The essence of wisdom is pain, and the essence of pain is wisdom. I've talked about going through that hospital visit, stay, however you want to phrase it, with the kidney stone and the sepsis, and how that pain stripped away everything from me except what was real and revealed to me the truth about my addiction. It revealed the truth about pain to me, like the root, the essence of pain. And now I get to come out of that and come out the other side of that, having moved through it, and then I get to share that with others and say, I experienced this kind of pain. I lived through this kind of pain, and that wisdom is surviving pain. It's about striving and, and surviving suffering and loss and failure. And now I'm going to share that with you. That's why Nietzsche said that I'm more a battlefield than a man. <laughs> Think about that. If that's not true of every one of us, that we are more a battlefield than a man or a woman, come on. How is that not true of our life? Life is a battle. And so we can either flee from the battlefield and therefore flee from being men and women, flee from our humanity, or we can recognize that this is the obstacle and that this way there is wisdom, there is growth, there is strengthening, there is improvement, right? Because, you know, for his part, autobiographically, Nietzsche spent a lot of his adult life struggling with illness. He would go through fits of vomiting. He had intense migraines that would last for weeks on end. And, of course, at that time in the 1800s, it's not as if doctors had a lot of wisdom because they had essentially abandoned the wisdom of their elders. And because of rationalism, went in a different direction with medicines and treatments of ailments. So they couldn't really diagnose the fact that the migraines caused the vomiting and that the vomiting, of course, led to ulcers and other physical elements. And so to lay there and suffer, to be a victim of your own body 
and not have any control over it. Truly, you are more a battlefield than a man at that point because your mind and your body are at war with each other. And then you throw your emotions in there. It's a war on three fronts. So as a consequence, he spent a lot of time alone, suffering. And yet simultaneously, he would not accept pity or sympathy from those around him. He wanted to deal with this on his own. He didn't want people's pity. He didn't want, oh, we feel so bad for you. What can we do to help? He didn't want that. And so, like so many theologians and philosophers throughout the last thousand years or so, their suffering and pain actually formed their confession. It formed their philosophy. It drove them. It stripped them of all but what is real about God, about human beings, about the meaning and purpose of life, about the meaning and purpose of their life. And what they came to recognize is that suffering isn't just evil. It's not only evil. It's not monolithically evil. It's not morally bad. Instead, suffering and pain it can actually be one of the greatest goods to ever happen to us because it strips us of everything that isn't real. And we spend so much of our lives judging reality based on our perspective about how things should be, how things must be, versus how things are. And therefore, we can't accept people as they are. We have to accept them as they must be for us. And that's why we demand that they conform and comply and compromise to fit into our perspective, our image of who they need to be, who they must be for us, versus who are you in truth? I accept that, warts and all, or I don't. But I'm not going to try and change you. I'm not going to try to fix you to fit into my image of you, my perspective. The greatest happiness, in my opinion, comes through great suffering and pain. It just is unfortunate that you have to go through the suffering and pain to get there. And as I've said before, I don't believe this is self-chosen suffering. I don't believe this is self-chosen pain. I think this has to be brought upon you by your body, by your mind, by circumstances that are out of your control. Because you have to be forced to face it. And when you're face up with something that's truly pain, that's truly suffering-inducing, the thing that strips away everything except what's real, all your filters, all your bullshit, your lies, your self-deceptions, what completely obliterates the script that, you, that you've written for yourself is real pain, real physical pain, real heartbreak. The kind that you say, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. That's pain. So Nietzsche writes in The Gay Science, what if pleasure and pain should be so closely connected that he who wants the greatest possible amount of one must also have the greatest possible amount of the other? Hmm. If you want pleasure, you have to go through pain. And if you experience pain, well, on the other side is pleasure. Or even in the midst of pain, there's pleasure because you recognize What's happening to me right now is going to lead me to something better. It's going to make me stronger. It's like Hunter S. Thompson said, that which does not kill me makes me weirder. <laughs> and so when we are in pain, we recognize, no, there is actually something good that's going to come because of this. And likewise, then, when we are enjoying ourselves, when we enjoy pleasure, we recognize, yeah, there's pain in this. 
watching Interstellar, the movie Interstellar the other night, the line that really hit me the hardest that I hadn't really paid attention to before was when Coop is talking to Murph, his daughter, before he's about to leave at the beginning of the movie at the end of the first act. And I, I, I might not get this exactly right, but it's pretty close, is that when you become a parent, it doesn't matter who you were before, but when you become a parent, you become your children's future memories. That's who you are now. You are your children's future memories. And it just wrecked me when he said it. And I wasn't even crying, but tears flowed out of my eyes, if that makes any sense. It was just a gut punch that that's exactly what I am. That when I'm dead and gone, my children will talk about me and remember me. And they'll remember who I was in truth. Because you're never more naked than when you're in front of your own family. So it doesn't matter who I want my kids to see me as. They live with me 24-7. It's like any reality TV show. At the beginning of any reality TV show, everyone's acting. Everyone's on their best behavior. It's a competition. It's a game show. But within a week or two, everyone reverts to their true personality. Their true character comes out. Because it's too much work. It's exhausting to play a part 24-7. Same thing with family. And so when I look at my kids, there's nothing that gives me more pleasure than to look in their faces and to see them sitting on the couch next to each other reading a book and they have the same facial expression. But simultaneously is the realization that they're growing up, they're getting older. They might die today or tomorrow. They might get a disease and I have no control over that. They might outlive me, I might outlive them but I don't have any control over that. And it causes me anguish to think that I might have to bury one of my own children. It causes me anguish to consider the fact that they're going to grow up and leave the house and I might not see them for years on end or at all ever again. It causes me anguish to know that I, I won't be there someday for them, that I'm just a memory. And yet if you said, would you trade it all in? Would you get rid of your kids in order not to go through this kind of pain, this kind of heartbreak? Not for all the money in the world. Well, how about if we replace them with somebody else's kids? Nope. Not for all the money in the world. What if one of them dies tomorrow? What if one of them is diagnosed with a terminal illness? What then? Would you wish that they were never been born? No, not, not for all the money in the world. One, because they're baptized children of God and I have that hope in the resurrection. But also that I understand what Nietzsche is getting about here, which is you can't have pleasure without some pain. You can't have pain without some pleasure. And I think that's a sign of maturity is when you recognize that the two go hand in hand. They're twins. And so he writes in my favorite essay, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, I must first go down deeper than ever I descended, deeper into pain than ever I descended, down into its blackest flood. Thus my destiny wants it. Once come, or whence come the highest mountains? I once asked that. Then I learned that they come out of the sea. The evidence is written in their rocks and in the walls of their peaks. It is out of the deepest depth that the highest must come to its height. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no man, for the Lord is with me. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, even when I crawl on my hands and knees through the pit, through the deepest depths, I'm not afraid because the Lord is with me. And I know where this is going. I know where I'm going and I know who's with me. And so even in the midst of the valley of the shadow, I enjoy true pleasure because I know that I have a God who will deliver me from this valley of tears to himself in heaven someday. And so right now, in this life, I have to go down deeper than I have ever descended. Every day, deeper. Deeper into pain. My own pain. The pain that I suffer through with my wife, with my children, with my congregation, with my teammates. With those that I love more than myself. I go down into the blackest flood. Why? Because I want it. Because I know that down there erupts the highest mountains. And they come up out of the sea. They come out up, up out of that blackness. And the evidence is written in their rocks and on the walls of their peaks. It is out of the deepest depths that the highest must come to its height. You cannot stand on top of the mountain if you have not walked through the valley first. And so how do you utilize suffering and pain to your own advantage? How do you use it to grow, to become stronger, wiser, better? Well, as he says, I assess the power of a will by how much resistance, pain, torture it endures and know how to turn it to its advantage. That's the point. You cannot get, you cannot gain anything great for yourself if you do not first find the strength and the will that is only to be found in suffering and pain. And so suffering and pain isn't something to be run away from. It's not a moral evil. In fact, quite often, if we're aware of it, if we harness it for our own purposes, our own goal, it is the vehicle that delivers us to what is real about ourselves, about others, and about the world. And then... Once the veil has been pulled back and we see our higher self, the self that God created us to be, when we see the truth about other people, good, bad, and ugly, when we see the truth about the world, that's when we become true men and women, truly heroic. Because now we're not afraid of conformity and compliance. We're not afraid of stepping out of line. We're not afraid of the mob that's when we become the most dangerous to others. When we achieve true peace of mind because we are strong and in our strength we become confident and in our confidence we become more thoughtful, more compassionate, more tolerant, more forgiving, but also more blunt, more honest. We're going to call a thing what it is in fact. We're not going to trust our perspective. We're going to trust our observations. We're going to listen. We're going to talk with people and not at people. And when pain presents itself, we're going to charge forward. We're going to go through the obstacle. We're going to move through it because the obstacle is the way. 
We're not going to try and resist pain. We're not going to consider suffering a great torture. Instead, we're going to say, thank you, God, for laying this burden upon my shoulders. Thank you for leading me through the valley of the shadow of death. Thank you for disciplining me so that I might live and proclaim the works of the Lord to become an example to others. Because if I've gone through the the deepest depths, if I've gone through the blackest floods, that means that I can go back in there and help other people. I can lead them out. I can be a light in the darkness. That's the point of life. That's the meaning of life. To carry the burden. And so we will suffer. We will become sick and ill. We will be mocked. Our neighbors will demand that we conform and comply and that we get into line. They will show contempt toward us. They will not trust us. They will consider us wretched people. They will pity us because we have chosen a different way. And as I've said to others before, the further you go on this path, the less people you meet. It becomes a truly lonely way. But for the strong, that's okay. That's a part of the suffering. It's part of the pain. It's part of the growing and becoming stronger. And if it inspires others to take the same path, well, then it's not so lonely anymore. So that's all I got today. That's what I've been thinking about today and for the past week or so. So... I hope you enjoyed the podcast, enjoyed the the discussion, the dialogue, the monologue, whatever it is, ruminations, thought experiment, however you want to term it. But I'm going to keep it at that because I'm already over an hour with this one. I'll be back on Sunday, God willing, for more readings from um, the book that we started. And the name of the book is, now I can't remember the name of the book, but it's on Bushido and Christianity. And we'll get back into, I think, chapter one, probably discuss that some more. Otherwise, thank you so much for everything that you do to support the podcast. Thank you to everybody who listens and gives me feedback and encourages me to keep going. And I hope it helps. I hope it at least gets you thinking and challenges your presuppositions. Like I've said before, whether you agree or disagree with me, I just want to get you to think. That's all. Hopefully it turns you on to reading Nietzsche, who I think is medicine for today's um, current societal discord and chaos and disunity. How about that? All right, folks. I love you. See you later, weirdos. Peace.